This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Dramatic or sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Hello and welcome. One and all to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, three triple R's weekly commentary on the state of all things and how we might face them. Uh, Bushy's my name, and with me in the studio is the magnificent Adam Grubb. How are you? Quite well. That's the ticket. Katie Dundas. Hello. How you be? Very well, thank you. How are you after your weekend? I am just recovered in the last few hours. Uh, we'll come to that another Tiny. time. Yeah, indeedy. And. Um, in full God mode at the panel, Jed McCartney, hello. Hello, evening all. Excellent. Adam Grubb, I'm going to throw to you. Really happy to have our guest tonight, Mr Tim Flannery. Probably needs no introduction to most Triple R listeners. Did a live to air a couple of years ago with Einstein and Gogo. Probably needs no introduction to most Australians. In fact, uh, being a former Australian of the year, uh, the author of, I don't know, at least 16 books, and he's a mammologist. Did I say that right? Yeah, Mammalologist, no, right. <laughs> paleontologist, environmentalist, um, the first to describe tons of mammal species in the scientific literature, both living and from the fossil record. And his some of his books include The Future Eaters, which I brought my copy in and I'm going to try and get the nerve up to get you to sign it at some point. <laughs> One of my favourite books ever in the world. And The Weather Makers, which was very influential across the globe about climate change and his latest just released book, Sunlight and Seaweed, An Argument for How to Feed Power and Clean Up the World. Welcome to Green and the Apocalypse, Tim Flannery. Hey, thanks so much, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here, mate. So good to have you. Now, we thought we might start... You grew up in Melbourne, right? Yeah. yeah. And I, I can't remember where I read it, but I, I have a, a memory of uh, hearing about your youth in, in the Bay. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Do you think it's... And has it affected your later incarnation as an environmentalist at all? Yeah, sure. Well, look, I was born in Melbourne 121 years after John Batman and Johnny Pascoe Faulkner waded ashore and set, settled the city. Um, you know, looking back... In a geological sense, I'm one of the pioneers, you know, it's that, that first few generations. Mm. And, um, you know, the Melbourne that I experienced growing up at Sandringham, which was in the edge of the suburbs, was sort of marred by this gross self-mutilation of the environment that mm. was going mm. on. You know, you couldn't call it anything else. Um, I remember people talking about home, not meaning Melbourne, but meaning Britain. Yeah. Right? And... Like my, I was I was a little kid. I was six or seven, and I remember seeing rubbish dumped on the swamp where I used to collect my frogs and tadpoles. You know, and why would anyone do that? Mm. Obviously, they want to build a factory on it and don't want the place to flood. And the local beach where I used to play, where the Red Bluff, we grew up right near Red Bluff Cliff, um, that was a rubbish dump. You know, mm. people were throwing old refrigerators off it, leaking oil and stuff, motor vehicles, bits of roadway, and I just I, I remember. 
even as a young kid, I, I kind of had to ask my mum, I said, what's this about, you know? And she said something like, oh, don't worry, that's just progress. And I decided then I wanted to have nothing to do with progress, whatever, <laughs> and as long as I lived. That was wrong. Yeah. It was so wrong. So was your mum's view a common view? Were you unusual in feeling horrified by that? I think I felt really alone, actually. Mm-hmm. Everyone else just accepted it as the way it was. Um, I was I was the kid who had a little you know little cubby house in the tea trees out the back, and I'd look at the butterflies and the lizards and the f- birds and all of that. I guess most of the other kids were playing footy or or doing something else and not be quite so interested. But for me, it was this full on assault. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm a you know a little bit um, I don't know. There's, there's a few of us in Australia who uh, you know, Tim Winton's another one who grew up on the edge of the suburbs and saw that mm-hmm. brutal mutilation of our environment mm. really raw you know mm. and and it's it's formed us through our whole life really i think mm. i feel a little similar out in the dandenongs if i go to, to that old street now mm. where i lived for 22 years um it's it's getting chopped up and you know it's getting mowed to within an inch of its life and planted out with completely inappropriate species and whatever livelihood and, and life i remember there as a kid's probably you know really pushed out to the margins and yeah, you know. well, and that—that's probably the heartache as well. When you st- and, I, and we used to go to Phillip Island a lot as kids, and you know, I, I can literally remember over the course of my life watching the, the flatheads that we would catch get smaller and less frequent, and oh, yeah. that sort of thing. It's, it's very unusual to have experienced a city growing like that, and the city's still growing. The population's going to almost double by twenty fifty. Mm-hmm. It's going to continue to dramatically change over. Our next life, mm. our lifetime, and our children's lifetime. Only if we don't care. Mm. You know, you yep. can have more people, and you can do it smarter and better and cleaner. Mm. It's when you don't care that really kills the place. So you reckon we can have exponential population growth? I don't think you can have exponential, but you can have population growth and still have a better outcome. I, I believe. I mean, Bushy, you know what you said about the flathead really resonated with me because I yeah. had exactly the same experience. I used to go out from Brighton Pier on a boat called the Tavi, and it was run by Taz, an ex-boxer, an old yeah. boxer, and Ivy's wife, and they take nice. out homeless guys who were haven't had you know. They were homeless in the 30s and still in the 50s and 60s. They were yeah. That was their joy, was going out on Saturday, catching fish, you know. And we'd all go out and old Taz, he'd say to me, I was always a bit green around the gills, you know, because mm. of the waves. He'd say, mate, I'll fix you up. He said, just uh, think about a nice big lump of rancid fat, he said, with great big <laughs> thick black horse hairs running through it. And, of course, I'd always bloody spew up and then feel better. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but the flathead, they were doing exactly that. They were just getting smaller. And less frequent, yeah. And the last time I went, uh, when I came back, I lived in Sydney for a while, came yeah. back to the bay, went down to the pier, kind of reminiscing, and what did I see in the car park? About 30 flathead that would have been like 10 centimetres long that have been gutted and mm. filleted and chucked out. Yeah. And I just thought, my God, what are we doing to this place? I, I feel like that, that disregard you mentioned at the start, people pushing fridges off the cliff and so forth like that, and my dad talks about a family friend who in the 1950s would go out on his boat and come back with 150 flathead yeah. when no one had a fridge or a freezer yeah. and spend two or three days trying to offload as many as he could to friends yeah. and then piff the rest in the bin. Cause he, you know, but, but he would never not go out and get 150. Yeah. Because look at all the bloody fish. And all that, and well, you couldn't, you could hardly not. I remember mm. throwing the line in and you just, it'd just be, you know, mm. like it was sitting ducks. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, well, well, so you, back in your youth, mm. you made some of your early scientific discoveries. I don't know if they were significant ones, but you f- started finding fossils. Yeah. And you grew into an adventurer 
ecologist or paleontologist and mammalologist? Mammalologist? <laughs> mammalogist? Mammalogist. Um, Just think of memories, yes. mammalogist, mammalogist. Oh, so that's what got you into word. it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> so the, and the Financial Times has yeah. called you as akin to a cross between Charles Darwin and Indiana Jones. And so David Attenborough has described you as in the league of the all-time great explorers like David Livingston. Um, but this is the old Tim Flannery, right? It's, yeah. You've... you've given up this life of adventure because a single issue more or less you've decided is more important than this exciting life you're leaving you were leading what what caused you to make that change and what did it feel like i was um I, i had the most amazing job through the 80s and 90s i was a curator of mammals at a museum in sydney and um basically it was invent your own job you know they'd give you a desk and a basic salary and if you could attract some um grant money you could go into the field and do whatever you wanted i could have gone to the antarctic or whatever Mm. but i decided that melanesia was the place i wanted to work so Mm. i went up into the high mountains of melanesia and on a couple of occasions was really the first european into some of these areas and discovered the most amazing fauna i mean Big, big animals like tree kangaroos that were just unknown to science. And I really loved it. It was great fun. Um, but, you know, I, I guess um, by the time I was in my early 40s, you know, I'd uh, looked around and I'd seen signs of climate change in New Guinea, you know. Um, I'd, uh, by that stage, I'd, I decided to take a, a job as well as director of a museum because I figured it was time to give young guys a bit of a chance to do their thing and I was going to be the guy who's going to hold the roof up financially to let that happen Mm. which i think i did reasonably successfully but i was always intending to go back and do some more research um Mm. but um the the you know i started looking into the climate issue at that stage and it 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 was so dire and i thought if i if i don't do it who is going to do it Mm. you know so that was it and um yeah to be absolutely honest with you i can't say i'm probably any happier for doing that as a person because i had a pretty dream life yeah but i feel um I feel like I've done the right thing. Hmm. It's a much murkier world, though, isn't it? The world of politics and public opinion. Yeah, and I'm not not good at it, really. <laughs> I'm, 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 good at the, I'm good at the animals, but I'm not very good at that stuff. Um, and yet it was your, your inroads into that world with writing The Weathermakers in 2005. That, that was published in something like 26 different languages. Yeah. And... Uh, it influenced Richard Branson and Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, you were invited into halls of power across the world to talk about it. It must have felt like it was a sacrifice worth making and yet at the same time, the decade after <laughs> its publication was not a great one for global CO2 emissions. What, what, was, what, what has been your experience emotionally taking on this issue well you know when i wrote the weather makers I, I wasn't sure who was going to read it i thought maybe university students might read it or high school people kids might read it but it turned out to be more read more widely which was which was great and mm. it was a it was like uh, jumping on an express train in some ways because it was published globally so you know i went to canada and when while i was in canada you know the the premier of um, british columbia 
wanted to see me, you know, and, and said, I want to do something about this, you know. So we talked about a carbon tax. BC's mm-hmm. got a great carbon tax, $35 a ton as a result, mm-hmm. you know. I remember being in Washington and talking to Tom Daschle and others, you know, leaders in the Democratic Party, had long conversations with them. But I was so tired. When, when I got back to my hotel room, you know, the phone rings, I pick it up, and it's a guy saying, look, I, I'm, I'm working as a staffer for a, a senator you probably haven't heard of from, from Illinois. Um, he'd really like a briefing on climate change and i said look i'd I'd love i'd love to do it but i'm so just so tired and i've got to get a couple of hours sleep you know he said oh well but i'll talk to you for a bit about it you know so i said who's this senator anyway at the end he said oh it's mr barack obama you know but you (laughs) so i missed meeting barack obama (laughs) because i was just before he was cool if i'd have known perhaps i would have been different but i so it was a crazy ride yes yeah but what about how how, you know it was, I think you, it was 10 years before you wrote your next book um, on the topic, which was A Climate of Hope, right? Yeah. And yeah. Um, you said it took that long before you could feel any optimism yeah, about that's right. the situation. Well, we'd started a movement back in 2005, you know, mm. and unknown to me, it had some big impacts. Um, but... As we moved into the political sphere, you know, in 2007, I became chair of the Copenhagen Climate Council and I gave that every ounce of energy I had for three years because I thought that that COP15 meeting in Copenhagen was going to be the decisive moment, you know. Um, And when that fell apart, I was... It was so tough. It was... Uh, and you know the the, the 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 forces of evil were positively crowing about Climate Gate and the way they destroyed the meeting, and yep. it was really pretty hard to get out of bed for quite a while. Um, but you know, I, I I'm not very good at moping. I did, <laughs> I did it for a few months, but <laughs> but after that, I I thought no, we just got to we just got to keep fighting. Yep. Just have to keep doing it. So mm. I did, and um, I became you know, climate commissioner here, um, which was a great period. Really, it had a big influence, big impact on me personally, mm-hmm. meeting so many Australians and talking to them about things. Mm. Um, well, yeah. that's, that's an interesting time because correct me if I'm wrong. During that time, that was when Abbott came in and he, he act, attempted to axe the climate commission, yeah. but then basically the public went, "Well, no, we want one." And stepped in, didn't we? That's right, they did. Yeah. But, but, you know, before that, we, I spent three years with my fellow commissioners, you know, going around Australia, talking to just the general public about climate change. I, I, I don't know, but I guess I would have spoken to 20,000 people, you know, all around the country, face to face. And I came away with this profound belief in the common sense of the average Australian. Mm really unshakable I, I remember you know one meeting we went up into coal country in Queensland which was I was a bit apprehensive about yeah, yeah. as you can imagine we had one meeting there with um, uh, Christensen George Christensen sitting oh, in the yeah. front row in his electorate you know and a, an audience at the back and we gave our 15 minute presentation and then opened the forum to questions and the first hand that went up was from this bloke who looked about six foot four and you could see the coal in his skin you know the black <laughs> in his skin yeah. oh god we're in for it here you know yeah. put his hand up and he said look thank you for your presentation he said i understand now what happened to me i was a farmer and um climate change destroyed my farming business he said and i've got a family i've got two daughters and um i had to get another job and i took a job in a coal mine and he said can you tell me am i doing the right thing you wow. know, and it was just so, wow, what do, what do you say, you know? And it, it made me realise the importance of us doing this together. Yeah. Right, as, as a nation. So there seems to be, at the moment, a disconnect between the public common sense and the desire to do something and the political will to do something. 
what can we do collectively? What's what do you think is the most positive thing us as a community can do together? Well, uh, the Climate Council now is working with councils because we think that in a thing called the Cities Power Partnership, because we think that councils are a very accountable level of government and they have so many natural reasons for dealing with this. I mean, you know, if if, if electricity can be generated locally or energy can be generated locally, the money stays in the community and the employment stays in the community. Efficiency helps ratepayers to save money. I mean, there's so many things. The thing that's holding councils back quite often is they don't have the capacity to to and the staff to be able to do this so the city's power partnership really is around uh, letting councils share that that expertise and knowledge and also providing access to grants and so forth and helping them do all of that stuff so you know when i look at it i think it, it we we're already 10 percent of all australians are represented in the 35 councils that have joined in the first tranche we had to call an end to new councils joining because we just couldn't service them you know initially but when i think about that i think wow we have actually done something as a little non-for-profit organization run just by you know donations from the australian public we've done something the federal government couldn't do you are listening to a triple r podcast Podcast, etc. <laughs> Triple R is where you are on a Tuesday evening, and Greening the Apocalypse is the show you are tuned to. We have uh, author, mammologist, mammalologist, <laughs> uh, paleontologist, environmentalist, author, legend Tim Flannery in the studio with us, um, and we've been having a good yak to him about his uh, life up until now and some of the sacrifices he's made in it. We're going to have a bit of a yak for the next segment uh, about his most recent book, Sunlight and Seaweed, uh, an argument for how to feed, power and clean up the world. So one of the things you mentioned in the book, Tim, is it might be good to take a second to tune in on where we're at with climate change and... We've talked about some of the politicals toing and froing. We haven't talked about, like, the Trump administration who notified the United Nations on Friday that they're pulling out of Paris. We don't mention his name either, Adam. Oh, yeah, sorry, the Golden Merkin. Golden Merkin. Um, we haven't mentioned the fact that our government here is pushing for the Adani Carmichael coal mine. But there has been some good news, and there has been some bad news. It's always a roller coaster with this stuff. In the book, though, you do mention a new study uh, which is saying that we're already locked into two degrees warming. And I think you're saying if we were to give up all fossil fuels right now, can you tell us a little bit about that study and the significance of it? Sure, yeah. Um, Look, what we've at the moment we're putting about 50 gigatons of CO2 and CO2 equivalent into the atmosphere. That's a very big number. Per year. Per year. And... um, just to give you a sense of how big it is, we could ask, well, how many people would we need to put into the atmosphere to make up the same mass, the same weight, right? <laughs> yeah, bring it. Yeah, you'd need to put the population of the Earth in t- two times over to do the same amount, right? <laughs> Float Bloody <them>. huge. <laughs> huge, right. And to take 10% of it out, to take five gigatons out by yeah. planting trees, because we all know about trees and planting them, how big an area would you need to plant? Australia four times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> bigger than Australia. You bigger need to plant, the, yeah, kind of contiguous 48 states of the US plus yeah. just to get 10% of it out. So it's a big problem and that, it's built that up. Would, just to be clear, so if you planted all of Australia with trees is what yeah. we're talking, yeah. um, that would take out 10% of our emissions. Current annual emissions. Each yeah. year. So it would cut them by 10% and yeah. it would keep doing that for as long as the trees grew. Well, no, that's on average over a 50-year period. So it's like it's just like 
planting trees, even if you covered yeah. all of Australia, like isn't is, it's a good thing to do. Which you couldn't do, it, like yeah, the climate could. doesn't allow it. But Not just exactly. as a but just visualization, well, which kind of makes you you know when they say climate offsets, we'll go plant some trees. Yeah, it makes well, it sound a little ridiculous, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. We've got to cut the use of fossil fuels. It's as simple yep. as that. Mm. But then we have to do more. We know that. And you know what, what that budget you mentioned, the carbon budget in the paper. I mean, it's there's two big bits of news we've had recently that have shed light on that. One is that, you know, if you put, say, burn a kilogram of coal and put the CO2 into the atmosphere, half of that CO2 will be drawn down into Earth's natural carbon sinks, so the oceans and the soils and trees and so forth. But those carbon sinks are weakening quite fast. So we can't count on them in future to draw down as much as they have in the past, which means more CO2 is going to stay in the atmosphere out of that mm. kilogram, right? Mm. Yeah. So that the carbon budget's smaller than we thought for that reason. Mm-hmm. Secondly, it's smaller than we thought because um, in the, the IPCC who do the carbon, carbon budget accounting don't account for methane or nitri- nitrous oxide. The reason they don't do that is the warming caused by those two greenhouse gases is roughly offset by the particulate pollution that you see in China, that terrible smog. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. But and, the Chinese and jet con- contrails, yeah, all of that, that kind sort of stuff. Of stuff yeah. yeah, but but they're mostly the particulate pollution. So right. that's about seventeen percent of the warming potential of all of the greenhouse gases are not accounted for. But as China starts cleaning up its air, <laughs> then we're going to have to account for that. Right. Mm. So we can see that the carbon budget's much smaller than we thought. Wow. So that's yeah. So as the <laughs> as we start to clean up and remove smog, yeah. Then these other greenhouse gases take on a a multitude of effect, a greater multitude of effects. Yeah. There's a crouching tiger under that smog of kind of greenhouse wow. gases that's just going to spike mm. the planet. Mm-hmm. And is and that's what this new study you're, you mentioned in the book is is looking into, and that's what it's saying. That's because right. the IPC isn't counting nitrous oxide and methane in its accounts, we're locked into much higher warming than we thought we were. That's and two right. degrees is at the upper level of what most people think is acceptable. Well, it's the political upper limit. It's the science. We're beyond the scientific upper limit. Yeah. Uh, we will have severe consequences at two degrees, like the barrier reef is unlikely to be able to survive those, mm. those sort of levels of warming. Yeah. So what I've been doing for the last five years really is trying to work on understanding how we can get gas out of the air at scale. And that's what this book is really about. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, tr- tree planting may not be able to do it, but, but maybe seaweed aquaculture can because you know, seaweed grows 30 to 60 times faster than land-based plants. In terms of its biomass by weight production. Yeah, be, because it doesn't remarkable. have to produce roots or trunks or bark or anything. It's all just the you know, active part of the plant, right? The yeah. growing part of the plant. Um, and the oceans are really big. The oceans are 72% of the Earth's surface, you know. Mm. So there's this really great study that gave me a kind of Lip of Hope, um, published a couple of years back, researchers said, you know, if we could just plant 9% of the world's oceans to seaweed farms, we would offset more than all of our current emissions and we could grow enough fish and shellfish to feed the planet, to feed a population of 10 billion people. You know? mm. Um, because the, the, the seaweed buffers the oceans less acidic, it's a great place to grow food, like fish, you know. And I thought, wow, that's fantastic. I'm going to go out and do something about this. And I thought, I'd better check how big 9% of the world's ocean is. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like about four and a half times the size of Australia. <laughs> oh, it's that's like where I got the that size stuff. of Asia. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's big. So, yeah. so um, 
Yes, it, we can do things. Like mm. if we could plant a seaweed farm the size of South Australia, roughly like a million square kilometres mm. uh, in the in the open ocean, we would be pulling out a gigaton a year, and yeah. that would be a massive contribution. So one fiftieth of what we're putting out. But yeah. if that was balanced with decreased emissions, it could be yeah. part of a part of a solution complex. That's right. We what what I'm trying to say is, I guess we still have a short window where we don't have to go to two degrees. If we start putting the R&D in now, if we start cutting emissions hard now, we can still get down below two degrees. If we leave it for a decade, that's not going to be... That window will close. Mm. Mm. It is... Uh, when, we're, when we're saying that, we're actually talking literally about a, a one farm. That be, I guess if there's a great advantage to this and potentially that it can be achieved by thousands of communities around the world, um, all in all in at once... Um, there's, I don't know, I mean, is there a market for it? I mean, if suddenly tens of thousands of communities right around the planet go, we're going to farm seaweed, mm. I mean, they will have a financial benefit, but do we risk, you know, flooding the market, you know, ruining yeah. the spot price of a commodity, things like that? Um, well, they, look, there's lots of unknowns in this. It's a, that's a desktop study, mm. you know. But what I can tell you is that seaweed farming is going gangbusters globally. Yeah. You know, I, I was at the Wando Seaweed Expo in South Korea this year and... You know, it's amazing the sort of stuff that they sell there. Everything from surgical implants made of seaweed gel yeah, right. through to cosmetics, through to feedstocks for, like, animals, through to human food, through to plastics. Mm. It was incredible, the sort of stuff that was out there. Well, that in itself is interesting, feedstocks for animals, because that's another aspect that... Now, I think you said in the book that, you know, the methane emissions from livestock are reduced when yeah. they have seaweed put into their diet that's right uh good for animal health is it yeah, yeah absolutely and some yeah. of the figures are sort of uh, they, they strain my credibility but you know, some of the initial studies have got reductions of 99.9 percent in sheep just from yeah. shandying their food with seaweed that's yeah, right. methane reductions yep. and very substantial ones in cattle okay so you know there's there's a huge amount of stuff there that'll happen mm. but in order to address the climate problem we need a sort of slightly different sort of seaweed farm we mm. need seaweed farms that are ocean going yep. and we need to sacrifice the seaweed not use it so because that's where the carbon is so okay. you need yeah, to talk cut, about it, that cut it off the flotation buoy and let it sink down into the ocean once it's down below a kilometer in depth that stuff is out of the atmospheric system for, right. for how long are we talking uh, well, not not really geological terms, but long enough to make a difference. Yeah. Like thousands, thousands of, years, of years, most likely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, it, it struck me when um, this came up in the book. Like, well, if the oceans are so good for growing seaweed, why aren't they full of it? The open oceans, anyway. Yeah, well, the reason is that the seaweed needs nutrients and mm -hmm. it likes cool water and there's very cold water and lots of nutrients 300 metres down in the open ocean, which is below the where sunlight penetrates. Um, so if you want a seaweed farm in the open ocean, you need to somehow get that nutrient-rich cool water up. And it, in fact, just this year, the very first experimental ocean-going seaweed farm is going to be built, it, partly funded by the Australian Federal Government, who have helped to put some money into this but this this first farm is only 100 square meters it's like a grid floating 25 meters below the surface mm. and there's a pipe going down 300 meters that pumps up cold water using um, wave energy wind energy and solar so it'll bring that water up to the top because that water's less salty it tends to stay up there mm -hmm. the seaweeds take all of the nutrients out of it then you've got a flow of cold water and when you think about this i mean it is possible but far from proven that we might be able to use a system like that to even give some life to failing coral reefs because that, that cold water might be able oh, to be just, yeah. just provide a little buffer for them. We don't know yet, you know, mm -hmm. but the potential is there for this mm. stuff. So I'm, I cannot emphasise strongly enough the need 
for really funding proper research and development of these new technologies. We don't have a lot of time. Mm. And what would be the business model for someone growing seaweed? Because you're saying you dump the seaweed out out into ocean trenches. Yeah. At the moment, the the model is that you use the seaweed for something and Mm -hmm. all of the aquaculture products. But in future, if there's a carbon price, Mm -hmm. you could be paid for just letting it go into the ocean depths you know that's what we need to see but we need to develop the technology first and understandings around environmental impacts of that technology and markets and all the rest of it Mm, that's where we're kind of lacking and you mentioned it could create a little an oasis well not a little one we're talking very large ones where with the seaweed there you could get uh, shellfish and and fish farms well, at the moment, the ocean is acidifying very yeah. rapidly. We know from experience in China that pHs as high as 10 can be generated around seaweed farms, creating ideal conditions for shellfish and fish and anything that lays down a skeleton or a shell to mm. flourish in. And that's exactly what's happening in China. People are using their seaweed farms as aquaculture, integrated aquaculture farms now mm. for production of high-quality marine protein and all of the seaweed products. Have you, have you seen Waterworld? I've never seen it, but I'm just yeah. imagining like these <laughs> yeah. whole economies in the middle of the ocean. Well, I, I'm hopeful you wouldn't see much. I, th- I think they're 25 metres down, so they're not going to ships aren't going <laughs> to run into them. Okay. There might be a little solar thing there, so it'll be satellite guided, you know, going around and yeah. doing its thing. Maybe highly, maybe completely automated. I don't know. But yeah, and we're trying to avoid the post-apocalypse scenario here too, yeah well so. we are indeed yeah, yeah, yeah as no, much as possible yeah yeah but still tooling up for it a bit <laughs> up in the hills there triple r is where you are and greening the apocalypse is the show we've got tim flannery in the studio adam let's hit the next question because i've lost track on this screen. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, <laughs> i'd say the two so the two big technological solutions that you mention in the book is seaweed farming and concentrated solar thermal. Tell us what that is and what makes you excited. Sure. Well, concentrated solar thermal technology is really just a way of focusing the sun's rays on a a point and then creating very, very high temperatures. Mm. And it can be used for a whole lot of things. And just a couple of examples of that. There's um, a farm in South Australia, a tomato farm called Sundrop Farms. Mm. It's only about 20 hectares. It's in the middle of the desert out near Port Augusta. Mm. Uh, And it grows about 10% of Australia's trust tomato crop, you know, the stuff you get in the supermarkets, Mm. um, uh, without using a drop of fresh water and virtually no fossil fuels. Mm. I mean... Just think about that for a minute. Mm. <laughs> That's amazing. Huh? That's a whole new thing. That, what people have done and is, is taken the most, you know, economically worthless land, this desert land near the coast, and made it prime agricultural land. Mm. And it's all done with CST because mm. you take salt water. The salt water used to go to feed a coal-fired power plant to cool one down, but mm-hmm. it's now used for this. So take it in, um, you distill Sorry, it. Sorry, that, that means the infrastructure was already in place. This is a That's retrofit, right. this project. It's a retrofit, yeah. basically, Fonda, yeah. yeah. So, so um, and you, you, you just distill water using flash distillation, so you've got fresh water. You then have heat energy you can use to warm the greenhouses because the desert gets pretty cold at night. Mm-hmm. And generate all your electricity. And, and it's such a great system. When I was over there having a look at it, I said to them, why don't you guys start up a canning works? You know, you've got Wyala Steelworks over there. You'd have cans. Mm. He said, look, we just don't get enough defective tomatoes to make, <laughs> to make it work. Oh, wow. It's an amazing system. And, yeah. you know, that was funded by the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, one of the great things that, that the federal government's done. Mm-hmm. You know, it's now gone, been sold on. But, um, yeah, so... That's one thing you can do with CST. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, just another example. There's a guy in the US who, about 18 months ago, demonstrated that you could use a special form of CST to bust apart the CO2 molecule 
and to take the carbon and use a catalyst to make nanofibers, carbon fibers. So imagine what that means, right? You're taking the problem, the atmospheric CO2, mm-hmm. and creating a solution that can compete head-on with steel and aluminium, big polluting mm-hmm. sectors, you know? Yeah. So these technologies are kind of, mm-hmm. I think of them as being almost magical, you know, in yeah. their potential. They let us be alchemists, you know, do, do amazing things. There is one one thing I often think about this with any technological innovation because I, I have this slightly, maybe it's a slightly cynical thought that so many of the problems of pollution and emissions have come about after so many accumulated centuries of, of creating new things. So um, to what, I mean, if we begin to put a reliance on technico- technological innovations um, on, on large scales, that requ- that, you know, they're going to require investment and capital and industry, industrial scales of construction and maintenance. Um, but, um, you know, and we probably collectively feel often that a behavioural adaptation is also one of the key things that's required for the future. Um, do you ever worry that people become complacent or use, you know, they'll hear about a new piece of technology and it almost becomes like a, a buffer for any behavioural change or adaptation. Yeah, absolutely. Is that a concern? It really is a concern and I feel like I'm in a double jeopardy situation, you yeah. know, because if I don't talk about these new technologies, we won't have the tools we need in future to avoid two degrees of warming. Mm-hmm. If I do talk about them, you can lull people into a false sense of security. And the way I try to break it down is just to say, First and foremost, we have to cut emissions right now. Stop burning that fossil fuel. That's behavioural change. That's political change, you know. But we need to invest in these technologies too because we have, quite frankly, gone too far. Yeah, yeah. And beyond that, we need to get really efficient. We need to live very lightly on the land. Mm. So I see it like... The technology of the tools, the mindset is there to use those tools and yeah. use them properly. And then there's a whole efficiency thing yeah. on the back. So we need to change our relationship with nature and yeah. and everything else, you know. Well, this is – we spoke, you and I, before in the green room, Tim, about the human story. And I was saying, you, you know, uh, your, your heart has to go out, for example, the people of Port Augusta who were a coal community. Yeah. And, you know, for several generations that was a fairly safe and reliable life. And, and now they were facing what was a fairly uncomfortable change. Now, this Sundrop Farm story is fantastic because yeah. it's given them a, a gentle landing. Um, I guess, uh, I mean, yeah, how do, how do you think other communities out there are going to cope when, with these changes that are taking place? Will there be a greater capacity with this as an example? Yeah. Are, are you still optimistic that we can give communities a gentle landing through co- uh, economic transitions and changes that they probably don't like, regardless yeah. of whether they see them coming or not? Look, yeah, it's such a complex issue because, you know, those, those steel workers at Wyala or mm. the people at the coal-fired power plant that shut down, it, it's more than that. They are incredibly proud of the nation they built. You know, yeah. they built the country physically, yeah. you know, yeah. and that's something really to be proud of. Mm. But we now know things about those technologies that we didn't know when yeah. that was happening, so yeah. we have to change. So we have to... Um, Understand the kind of immense dignity that those people have and pride they have. Yeah. And we can't think of them as being wrongdoers in any sense. No. Um, but what we need to do is to move forward with dignity together. And Sundrop Farms is a great example of that. You know, when the um, coal-fired power plant, Northern Power Plant, closed at Port Augusta, there was 160 people without jobs, you know. And in Port Augusta, where do you go for a job, yeah. right? Yeah, it's yeah. really tough. Yeah. Thank heavens CEFC developed this thing, which was kind of coincidental. It wasn't to do with the closing down of the, you know, yeah. coal-fired power plant. 
But, you know, that, that created 200 full-time jobs in Australian agriculture. I met the chief engineer from, from the coal-fired power plant who was now running the CST yeah, plant, yeah, you yeah. know, and people are happy and proud and they've got their stable community. We need to think about that across the country as we under, undergo this transition. And yeah. quite frankly, federal and state governments have been appallingly bad at that. And we as taxpayers owe it to our fellow Australians mm. to make sure that we can move forward with real dignity into yeah. a better future rather than just hang people out to dry. Indeed. I noticed uh, page one of the book you talk about the, the two things we need to do plus we need to reform our democracy. Yeah. I, I didn't see it again in the book. No, because the book isn't about that challenge. That's no. another whole topic. So, so what... <laughs> What is that challenge and, and how do we do it? Because yeah. I think, you know, today particularly, after the, the debacle that went on in Canberra last yeah. night about same-sex marriage, it's yeah. a simple thing. We can't even get that right. Yeah. How do we get really complex issues like climate change right? Well, to me, uh, it feels like our representatives have stopped adequately representing us. So they don't represent the community. And, I, you know, having been Climate Commissioner and talked to so many Australians, like I said earlier, I've got a real confidence in the common sense of people to do things. So I think we need to move to a model where we are all representatives over small decisions for short periods of time. Because, you know, if you, if you leave people in Parliament, uh, you know, and, and once every three years we go back, Edmund Burke said it, I mean, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely, mm. which is why they drift away from what people want because there's lobbyists through the door day after day after day and things get changed. So, um, you know, I, I would love to see a system whereby um, we had citizen juries, which are, you know, statistically representative samples of the people who are impacted by a decision, who you would impanel, you'd pay them for their work, you would empower them to call anyone they want to give evidence. Head of Treasury, if it's a Treasury decision, whoever, you know, they, they should be able to do that. The only obligation is at the end of a set period of time, they need to come to a decision. Um, and I can imagine that being the new job for all of us in the future, being part of that in panel jury system to make decisions. Can you imagine the decisions we get on the federal budget if we impaneled a jury of citizens chosen at random, mm. right? And said, is, it, is, is that defence budget look about right compared with the health budget? Yeah. And, you know, like, well, how do you think that looks? And what about taxation? Does the taxation system look fair? Does it pass the sort of, you know, pub test of yeah. fairness? And, and let the jury delve into these things. I feel what like there'd be a lot of harbourside mansions being converted to childcare centres. <laughs> It's, yeah. But and that's kids, cool. Yeah, kids cool. love marble floors. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. can you imagine how it might happen? Just yep. a few good citizens standing up saying, I will stand to represent my community. I'm only going to stand for one term for three years. Mm. I will not make a decision in Parliament unless there's a citizen jury that tells me what the community wants, an adequate citizen jury. Um, and my only job in Parliament will be to try to pass a piece of legislation saying that every budget decision at least made by this Parliament has to go through a citizen jury process and they'll be given latitude to vary it. But they must be committed to that. And if one person did it, maybe other people would do it. Mm. You wouldn't, it wouldn't be a party. It would hopefully be a movement of people to say we, you know, some of us need to sacrifice, uh, step up into that role, give, a, give three years of our life to it in order to empower us all and get a better outcome. Mm. Awesome. Uh, Adam, we're running down a little bit, but... You've got something to say to wrap up. Oh, yeah. Now, Sarah Coles, who's here in the studio live tweeting last week, she spoke to punk rock icon John Joseph. He he was a he grew up on the streets and uh, ended up in jail and got shot and um, started a punk band. Now he's a vegan triathlete. 
Um, we've got a little sample of the interview. Can we play that, Jed? This is a, this is about how. Anyway, he I named had another book. title for the book. Yeah. And it was like the Go Green Road to Health, Fitness, and Longevity. And, yeah, and that's then not my, as good. And then my publisher was like, you know, what are you fucking, Doctor Oz? Nobody wants to hear that fucking <laughs> book coming from you, dude. Come on, man. And then I started <laughs> what telling are you, the him, juice man. No, but the thing was, uh, I, I told him the story of what the dude said in the gym that fucking people that are vegan are pussies. And then my publisher was like, you got to throw it back in their face. Fuck them. And that's why he, I said, yeah, no shit, man. Meat is for pussies. They're the ones fucking, fucking, you know, getting fucking uh, erectile dysfunction and, and fucking up the planet and all this other shit. Yeah. They're the, you know, and then he was like, yeah, let's, I said, yeah, meat is for fucking pussies. And he goes, that's the title of the book. And that's how that title came about. So, so love the book, Sunlight and Seaweed, an argument for how to feed, pound, clean up the world. But I just, I've got a pitch for you. I don't know if the American edition has come out yet. I think this could have more impact. <laughs> You're not the first to say it, mate. I know. Now, for, for those of you who can't say it, hold up I the know. book, Adam. Yeah. Adam's changed the cover. It's Tim yeah. Flannery, Fossil Fuels are for Pussies. <laughs> how to feed, feed, power, clean up the world, kick ass and take names. And I, I've edited the Sunday Telegraph quote a little bit that's on the front cover of the actual book. It's probably not very legal to do that. But I think if you <laughs> said that, Kate, then you could just change the name to Triple R. Say what? Down there. Oh, Billy. This bit. Yeah. I've got to say that. Yeah. Language warning. Language warning. If you haven't picked it up already. Heed this motherfucker's word if you don't want to get fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd been here six months ago. <laughs> awesome. And you can develop a thick Brooklyn accent. That, that, was, that was all for free, by the way. <laughs> the second Thank printing guys. Yeah, second exactly. Printing. I might uh, even get a copy of that. I'll photograph that with my phone. It's, <laughs> it's all yours. Uh, we have been, well, we have had the great honour this evening of speaking to Tim Flannery. You are on 3RRR, Greening the Apocalypse. Well, we are commencing the wrap-up then. Um, thank you very, very much. Tim Flannery. Hey, it's been a pleasure, Bushy. If you told 20-year-old version of me that I'd pan left and say that one day on radio, I probably wouldn't have believed it. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, you do a great job. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks mate. Thanks, guys. Uh, what's coming up uh, on the event horizon, Adam Grubb? Uh, well, should we mention first just where people can find sunlight and seaweed? It's out now? Yeah, it's out now. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So it should be in bookshops, I hope. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, so, I mean, it's going to be carried everywhere, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, well, yeah. Good, good work. Um, I, we should mention um, there's a climate convergence put on by the Australian Conservation Foundation uh, on the 22nd of September. I think it might be a full weekend type affair. Uh, that's going to be in Fitzroy at the Town Hall. Um, it's all sorts of things relating to climate activism and how to skill up everything from writing press releases to probably locking yourself onto coal trucks. Coal, I don't know. But you can find out more. I found out about that where I found out about it. A lot of events at ecoshout.org.au. Do you have any events you want to mention, Tim? Um, no, look, just a, this, that city's power partnership. If people are interested, mm. contact your local council and oh. encourage them to join. We, like I said, we've had to call a, an end to the numbers, but when we open up again, it'd be great to have lots mm. more councils involved. Yeah. And um, we hope to get out there and 
just hold a few events to show local councils how much people care. So we'll be doing that over the next year. Awesome. Awesome. Coming up this Friday, it's the start of Radiothon and uh, the theme this year, It's Alive! Um, so after Friday at uh, 6 a.m. when the breakfasters kick off, uh, it's time to subscribe. Put your money where your ears are. Um, and we'll be in next Tuesday. All hands on deck. Thank you again, Tim Flannery. Awesome. It's been great, Peter. Thank you. Brilliant. Jed, thank you for the buttons and so Good forth. Job. Katie, Adam, we're all back on deck next week. We'll see you next Tuesday. But until then, have all the fun. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.